Morning Church. A reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 19. Um, you will find the scripture on page 813 of the uh, Bibles provided in our church pews. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Juliet, thank you very much indeed. Just uh, before we begin to say that uh, last Sunday morning we welcomed some of you into membership and associate membership, and because we were under time pressure, we weren't able to mark the occasion as we would have wished, so we're going to have a little tea together and photographs at the back of the hall after the service with you, so do please stick around for that. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, we we read in your word that it is granted to people to believe. We pray that you would do a work in us so that we believe truly and deeply, and that our belief 
would translate into belonging and behaving in a way that brings you praise, is a blessing to others, and a joy to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the benefit of those of you who are visiting today or may be listening to this online for the first time, we're in a short series in the Apostles' Creed under the title, What Christians Believe. Uh, this is our fifth study, and as you know, the creed begins with those famous words, I believe. One of the things we said last week is that we are called as Christian people to defend the faith. And it's especially important for us to be doing that today, living as we do, in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christian things. And the way that we defend the faith is by sharing what we believe with other people. That's how we do it. So this series is really all about making sure that our faith has got deep roots so that we don't just keep it to ourselves, but that it flows out from us quite naturally in all our dealings with the people around us. Now, last week, we were rather surprised to see that the creed jumped straight from the womb to the tomb. Do you remember that? Uh, there's nothing in the creed about the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus, but we find as soon as we've confessed his unique birth, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, as soon as we've said that, we find ourselves saying that he suffered and died. And that's, of course, because his mission was to die. That's why he came. Now, this morning... We come to the words, on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. I wonder if you've noticed that uh, in the church we tend to make a great deal of the resurrection, but actually not very much of the ascension. It's rather interesting that, isn't it? Uh, Easter is a major date in the church calendar, but ascension day often comes and goes without us even noticing. Well, I hope this morning that maybe we can put that right. Why is this important? Well, first, it's important because your time and mine in this world is limited. Uh, so we quite naturally want to know what our lives are moving towards. I guess one possibility is to say that we are moving towards the grave. The grave's the end of the journey, nothing beyond the grave. And of course, that's a very common view today. You live, then you die, you stop living. And of course, if that's what you believe, well, you've got to squeeze everything you possibly can, haven't you, into this life, because it's the only life you've got. Another possibility is that we kind of invent a future. Um, a picture of the future that's going to cheer us and comfort us when, uh, when we need it, and then we make ourselves believe it. So the religions and the philosophies of the world have got different ideas about the future, but they're all based on human imagination. 
So if you find yourself going to a secular funeral, uh, somebody will say something sweet about the future uh, as a way of reassuring those who are left behind. But really, it's no more than wishful thinking. And then the third possibility is that our lives are heading towards resurrection. That's what Christians believe. And we base our convictions about that on the resurrection of Jesus and on the promises of Jesus. That's actually the foundation on which the church stands. Now, I'm aware that just saying it like that, it can sound a bit slick. But friends, this is really important. We need to think it through. What are people ultimately going to? And how can we be sure? You know, I realize that sometimes uh, we tend to overthink certain things. So, you know, if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning with a few aches and pains, um, it's very easy, isn't it, to overthink the possibilities. But resurrection is something that we tend to underthink. And the people around us also tend to underthink what happens when they die. Now, the second reason this is such an important subject is because if the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ did not happen, well, there's no savior and there's no king. And of course it means, doesn't it, that the church has got nothing to say, unless of course it simply wants to be a social club that tells people to go away and be nice. And of course, if it can be proved that there was no resurrection, well, the founder of our faith is exposed as a failure, isn't he? As we heard in our reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, this is what the Apostle Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Well, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? Paul was rather, rather a blunt fellow. But he doesn't stop there. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. So that's why this morning we need to think about these two phrases in the creed very carefully. First, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what can we find to say about this that hasn't already been said many times before? Every Easter for 2,000 years, Christians have been told that Christ rose from the dead. Well, as I've been thinking about it, I want to assure you that you could spend 50 Sundays thinking about this and still only scratch the surface. First of all, why does the creed say, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. What's so special about the third day? Well, the reason the creed says it is because the Bible says it. Uh, verse 4 of our reading in 1 Corinthians 15 says, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why does the Bible say that? Because the Bible wants you and me to know that this is history. 
This isn't an idea that somebody simply dreamed up. You know that there are churches today where you will actually hear a pastor say that the resurrection as such didn't really happen. What actually happened was that uh, Jesus kind of rose in the hearts of his disciples. Uh, so um, the idea is that the disciples said to one another, our leader is dead, but he lives on in our hearts so we can carry on with the mission. Well, of course, that's nonsense, isn't it? And it's an absolute tragedy when people say that because the Bible says quite plainly, Jesus rose on the third day. It's a historical event. And history matters. History matters, doesn't it? What's today's date? It's the 11th of February, isn't it? It's an important date, actually, in the history of this country. Because it's the day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison. 11th of February, 1990. Obviously, a highly significant date in history for South Africa. But there's an infinitely more significant day in world history, and that's Easter Day. Because on the first Easter day, Jesus wasn't simply released from prison. He was released from death. He conquered death. Nelson Mandela headed a political revolution in this country that burned extremely brightly for a while. We're very thankful for him. But Jesus heads a kingdom revolution, which impacts not just one country, but the whole world. And it belongs to eternity. It's not going to fizzle out. And it's all based on a day in history, an actual historical day. What evidence is there that Jesus actually rose? Well, obviously, we're not eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You think about it, no one actually saw the resurrection moment must have been an extraordinary thing, that, mustn't it, don't you think? No one was there to see it. So what's the evidence? Let me give you a few quick thoughts. First, on at least three occasions, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed and after three days, rise again. And Mark, in his gospel, says Jesus spoke plainly about this. So he wasn't woolly. He wasn't vague. He spoke plainly about it. Now, friends, if Jesus was wrong about that, if he said he would rise, but he didn't, well, can we actually trust anything he said? I mean, it's very hard, isn't it, to see how the disciples would have carried on if Jesus was wrong about that. So I think we need to think very carefully about Jesus' own prediction of his resurrection and the fact that the early church was not disappointed in him. Second, we know that the tomb was open and empty uh, the Romans, who had been told to guard the body with their lives, somehow lost the body. 
And as a result, they ran away from the tomb, and there's been no other satisfactory explanation for the empty tomb apart from the resurrection. Third, there were numerous resurrection appearances. When he rose, Jesus began to appear to individuals, to small groups, and on one occasion to more than 500 people at the same time. And he sometimes appeared to people who weren't expecting him. And the people who met the risen Jesus were totally transformed by the experience. Uh, It seems from scripture that uh, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was an unbeliever. But the risen Jesus appeared to him. James was convinced And within a few short years, he became the leader of the Jerusalem Council. Now, you can't have a more radical transformation than that, can you? Fourthly, the disciples went from hiding to publicly broadcasting their faith as widely as possible. So something happened to change them from frightened rabbits into fearless evangelists. And in most cases, it cost them their lives. And just as an aside, please remember that uh, Jesus still works in the same astonishing way today. Because contrary to what you and I might think, he works most effectively through disciples for whom being a Christian really does cost something. So the fastest growing church in the world today is the church in Iran. Uh, The persecution in Iran is relentless, but the Christians are fearless. They believe in the risen Lord Jesus, and they're not afraid to say so. And uh, the church in Iran is growing like topsy. Now that is the same pattern that we find in the early church. And then a fifth thing that strengthens our faith, this is very interesting, that strengthens our faith in the resurrection, is that after the resurrection, the early church moved the Sabbath. They moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Uh, You'll know from your Old Testament that uh, you don't, don't just mess about with the Sabbath on a whim. And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. The early Christians, of course, were mainly Jewish people, but they came to believe that Jesus was the Christ that had risen, and so they changed the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, why did they do that? Because the resurrection changed everything. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that this information will impress your neighbors. Um, I think of the people around us uh, where we live in Takai, and I don't suppose these five things that I've mentioned would impress them in the slightest. They're lovely people, but actually in their world, the resurrection is a non-issue. And I suspect that the reason that it's a non-issue for them is that somewhere in the past, the resurrection has been presented to them as a myth. 
that it's a nice story that comforts people when life gets rough, but it's really nothing more than that. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully here. The New Testament presents the resurrection not as a myth, but as a challenge, and an urgent one at that. Because in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is talking to unbelievers. And he says to them, effectively, the resurrection means that you have an appointment with Jesus Christ. That's what it means. You know, if the resurrection is true, then you and every person in your street, every person in your family has an appointment with Jesus Christ whether they like it or not. And on that day, uh, either he will welcome you with open arms, or he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. So, dear friends, Easter is not a myth. And it's not primarily a comfort, although it is that. Primarily, it's a challenge. What sort of body did Jesus have when he rose? Well, his resurrection body had similarities and dissimilarities. So he could be seen. I take it he looked pretty much the same. He could be heard. I assume he sounded pretty much the same. He could be touched. And I imagine that he felt pretty much the same. So Luke tells us in chapter 24 of his gospel that Jesus said to his disciples, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus kept his humanity, but he wasn't a ghost. And in John chapter 20, Jesus is talking to Thomas and pointing to the marks of the nails in his hands. He says, put your finger here, and then pointing to the hole in his side where the spear went in, he said, reach out your hand and put it into my side. And we're told in Acts chapter 10 that Peter says, we ate and drank with him after he rose. So there were tremendous similarities between the risen Jesus and Jesus before the crucifixion and before the resurrection. But there were also great dissimilarities. For example, in John chapter 20, uh, Jesus came to the disciples through locked doors. And then Luke 24, Jesus, you remember, he's walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they recognized him. And just when the conversation was starting to get really interesting, he disappeared. So the resurrection body of Jesus was physical, but it was new. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't subject to the limitations of our humanity. And here's the point. Jesus promises every believer a new body just like that. You and I are not going to be ghosts, and we won't be subject to the same physical limitations that we live with today. 
Isn't that marvelous? Let's think a bit more deeply then about the significance of the resurrection. I mean, why should we care about this? Let me mention a couple of things quickly to you. First, the resurrection confirms Jesus is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, of course, he always was the Son of God. Uh, He didn't suddenly become the Son of God at his resurrection. But the Son of God was publicly proclaimed in a new and global way by the resurrection. In other words, if people were cynical about the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth, who'd started out as a carpenter and done all these extraordinary things, the resurrection changed everything because he's gone through the grave and he's conquered it. He's beaten the horrors of crucifixion. And so you and I must take him with the utmost seriousness. Second, the resurrection confirms Jesus to be the savior of the world. Now that is because his atoning death worked. Remember, John says, he. He gave himself as a spotless lamb. And the father said, agreed. Agreed, I agree with that. I accept your sacrifice 100%. Interesting, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says Jesus was raised for our justification. What does that mean? I don't think we normally think about the resurrection as being for our justification. But do you remember last week that we saw on the cross that Jesus was under God's curse? Do you remember that? But in the resurrection, God is demonstrating his favor by raising him. The work has been done. The curse has been lifted. The sacrifice has been accepted. Jesus is publicly vindicated. But of course it means this, doesn't it? That all the people who are in Christ by faith are caught up in God's approval of Jesus. So he was raised for our justification. Thirdly, the resurrection shows that death is defeated. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. In other words, if death is strong, and it is, and somebody comes along and beats death, then the person who beats death is the new champion, isn't he? One writer puts it rather beautifully when he says, Jesus punched a hole in the fabric of history. He grabbed the last days and pulled them through the tomb 
so that we might enjoy them today. Fourthly, the resurrection brings tremendous blessings into our lives now because it means that we know we're forgiven. Amen? Amen. The resurrection proves it. It's also possible, isn't it, for us to have fellowship with Jesus now. Why? We know because the risen Jesus said to his followers, I am with you always to the very end of the age. After the service here this morning, uh, maybe some of you are going home alone to an empty house. But actually, you won't be alone. The Lord Jesus is with his people always. That's what he promised. And um, the resurrection means that the future is real because Jesus said, where I am, you will be also. Now, the promise. Now, I think the evidence from Scripture and some of the implications we've been thinking about together are persuasive. And can I say to you this morning that it gets better and better the more that you look at it, and conversely, it gets weaker and weaker the more you look away from it or ignore it. Dr. Jim Packer says in his marvelous little book on the Creed, that you and I actually should be astonished by the resistance of some people to the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. And I think he's absolutely right. On Friday, we had uh, the memorial service for Brenda's mum, and it was a beautiful time, I think. But why is it that at most funerals, you know, there are people there and they're grieving, they're trying to understand what's happened. They're trying to make sense of their loss. And the preacher stands up and he says, the resurrection changes absolutely everything. And afterwards, no one will go anywhere near him. Hmm? Why is that? Can you tell me? You know, the preacher sort of walks around the tea afterwards like a leper. See, what should be happening is that people should be coming up to him and saying, look, well, I don't believe this, but please will you tell me why you do? I want to know more. But there's kind of a strange resistance to this particular subject. Uh, Packer says we shouldn't be astonished that we believe it. We should actually be astonished that people are so resistant to it. Maybe we shouldn't be quite as surprised as that, because we know, brothers and sisters, don't we, that when people want to get away from Christ, anything that gets in the way gets in the way, doesn't it? One of the reasons we're doing this little series is because I want to say to you this morning, please will you fight for this doctrine? Don't roll over. It gets attacked again and again. So please, will you use it in your personal witness? Because the resurrection is a very key thing for people to think about who are not Christians. So when you find yourself having a gospel conversation with someone who's not a Christian, don't get sidetracked into secondary things. 
Don't get dragged into predestination and election. Focus on the main subject. Tim Keller, who's always brilliant at these things, uh, he says that on one occasion, a, a visitor arrived at his church in New York. And uh, after the service, the visitor said to Tim Keller, well, thank you so much for your service. But um, before I consider joining this church, I want to know what your views are on same-sex marriage. As if to say, look, if you can give me a palatable answer on that, well, I might just think about joining your church. A delightfully patronizing comment. And Tim Keller was very good. He said to him, okay, you work out the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, do whatever you like. But if it did happen, follow Jesus Christ. What an absolutely brilliant answer. See, the resurrection is absolutely crucial. Last few minutes, let's just think about the little phrase, he ascended into heaven. Now, of course, although nobody witnessed the moment of the resurrection, people did see the ascension, didn't they? Uh, it, it took place right in front of the apostles. They saw it. But what is the evidence for the ascension for us here this morning? Well, first of all, it's very striking that the Old Testament actually predicted it. So Daniel, chapter 7, which we looked at last year, talks about one like a son of man being led into the presence of God. Jesus himself also used the language of ascending. And uh, in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, uh, you may remember he appears to Mary Magdalene. She's overjoyed to see him. And he says to her, don't hold on to me. I'm returning to my father. I'm going home. And the New Testament elsewhere uses this ascension language. So in Ephesians 4, Paul says that Jesus, who descended, also ascended. The accounts of the ascension are in two places in our New Testament. Uh, you'll find them in Luke and in Acts. Luke 24, we read that Jesus left the disciples and was sort of taken up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 says he was simply taken up. What does that mean? How are we to understand it? Well, again, Dr. Packer, in his book, explains the ascension like this. Quote, withdrawal, Jesus withdrawing, had to take place somehow, and going up, going down, going sideways, failing to appear, or suddenly vanishing were the only possible ways. And then he says, which would signify most clearly that Jesus would henceforth be reigning in glory? Well, obviously, it's ascending. It stretches our imaginations. But then, of course, we also believe, don't we, that nothing is impossible with God. You know, we believe, don't we, that Elijah ascended to heaven, didn't he, in a chariot of fire? 
that Jesus walked on water, that he entered a room that was locked from the inside. And so we believe it's perfectly possible for Jesus to ascend. And think about this. Luke says in his account that when the apostles had seen Jesus being taken up to heaven, they went home joyfully. Isn't that interesting? They were full of joy. You know, they weren't disappointed. They weren't confused. They weren't baffled. They went home joyfully clear that they'd seen the king returning to his throne. He'd come from his throne, and now he'd returned to his throne. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that the king of kings is on the throne of the universe. He knows what he's doing, and he's got both the power and the love to do it 100%. Second, there's somebody on the throne of heaven who's interceding for you and me this morning. What he's doing is he's saying to the Father, please, please continue to bless my people because of this, the wounds I've sustained and the work that I've done. Please continue to bless my people. And Jesus hears our prayers. You know, we tend to forget the importance of that. You know, we might get weary of our own praying, even in our own quiet time. And we might not listen to other people when they're praying. But Jesus does. His ears are attentive to our cry. And he continues to save and to build his church and to provide for the needs of his people. Somebody has said rather brilliantly that if you are a Christian, you're married to Christ by faith, which means you cannot be condemned unless he is condemned, and it means that Jesus cannot be glorified unless you are glorified. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? So the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is a kind of movement which reverses the fall. It reverses our separation from God and it brings in a new creation. And I want to close this morning by drawing your attention to something very special that I only saw this week for the first time. It's the account of the first creation in the book of Genesis. I want you to listen to this. In the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, there's a rather um, strange phrase that is repeated six times. Uh, We're told, you remember, that God created whatever it was, and then Genesis says there was evening and there was morning the first day. And that phrase is repeated six times. Now, here's what's so very interesting. You and I move from morning to evening. That's all we can do. We move from the light to the darkness. But God moves from evening to morning, from the darkness to the light. 
That's what happened with Jesus. He moved from the darkness of death to the daylight of resurrection in the power of an endless life. And uh, that's what he's going to do for you and for me. He's going to move all his people from the darkness of death to the daylight of eternal life. And that, my friends, is why we say with great confidence, on the third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for communicating to us the great truths of the rising and the ascending of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would lift up our hearts this week amidst all the challenges in our daily lives, that we might remember that King Jesus is on the throne of heaven today that he invites us into fellowship now and one day will bring us into his presence forever. Fill us with this hope, we pray, and may it overflow to others that they might believe as well. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.